the moment that we ask what is good or bad, we are basically confronted with two and a half thousand years of philosophical, moral philosophical in particular, conversation. And in order to disentangle that for a question of what is a good business business in the 21st century, there's a need to acquire some of the toolkit that philosophy has prepared for us. The bedrock is that you cannot be not normative. That's just not possible. The moment you say we want to maximize profits, you already have a normative stance. And that's, I think, is important to understand. So whatever we decide, morals are attached to it. And it makes a lot of sense to think about how could it be different. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Bandless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hello everybody, this is Tina Heikele here. I'm here to give a little bit of a prelude to today's session where we had two guests this time. Uh, we had with us Otti Vogt and Antoinette Weibel to talk about questions around how do we foster good and how do we even know what is a good organization and how can we separate good from bad and, and really going into those philosophical questions around how we define a good organization and a good society. Um, both of our these guests, they have very impressive bios and you will be able to find them online. But just to give a little, a few um, headlines and a few highlights, Antoinette Weibel is full professor for human resource management at the University of St. Gallen. Uh, she's president of the executive committee of the Institute for Systemic Management and Public Governance at the University of St. Gallen as well, and a member of the executive committee of the Institute for Media and Communication Management at the Institute for Business Ethics, also at the University of St. Gallen, and her current project, Good Organizations, asks how organizations can become better members of society. And this is really also at the core of the, organ of the conversation that we had with them. Uh, Otti, on the other hand, he's a thought leader with over 20 years experience in implementing strategic business change in multicultural and complex businesses. And he's really uh, into crafting human-centric learning organizations, which is another topic that we, of course, cross with all these questions that we raised in this conversation with Otiana Antoinette. As a former COO and Chief Transformation Officer at ING, uh, he was uh, until recently accountable for ING's Global Digital Transformation Program and the continuous optimization of operational service performance and serving over 20 million customers worldwide. Um, he's a certified leadership coach and an associate of the Globally Responsible Leadership Initiative. And finally, he was recently named the top 20 global thought leader on Agile. Unfortunately, Otis sound quality in this episode is a little bit poor, so uh, bear with that and, and just uh, listen to the content of everything that he has to say. Uh, I think this conversation uh, you know you should really try to enjoy with a cup of tea sitting down and really contemplate those big questions around how do we look at uh, the type of organizations that we want to design that we want to create and what does it even mean to be good what are the moral implications of how we act and how and how we relate to one another so 
what can we learn from thousands of years of of philosophy in answering those types of questions? This is really at the core of of the collaboration between Otti and Antoinette, and you can take a lot of insights from there. Another uh, important strand that we explored was really how how do, does the ethics and the moral questions reside in the relationships between uh, people? So so where do, does my responsibility start and end, and and how do we define that an interdependence kind of way between uh, people? And I think what they really brought brought out is that we we are social animals by nature, and and we should use the power of sociality in a way to really guide us in designing better organizations that can also in turn help to create a more flourishing society. Um, so these are really uh, important sort of things to keep in mind when you listen, that this is, if we, we are thinking about ecosystemic organizing and, and how how we relate to, to between organizations and within, um, there are some very fundamental questions uh, to be asked. So you will be able to find uh, the, all the references and the, the bios of our guests and a transcript and so on on our website. So just go to boundarelessio slash resources slash podcast and look for the episode with Otti and Antoinette. So please enjoy. Okay, we're back at the Boundless Conversations podcast. Today I'm here with my usual co-host, uh, Stina Hekila. Hello, everybody. Hello, Stina. And uh, with us, there are two special guests with whom we're going to discuss uh, very deep questions around business and organizing. We have uh, Antoinette uh, Weibel. Yes, hello, everybody. Otti uh, Vogt. Journal from London. Hello, thank you both for being here. So, first of all, I mean, you have been working together in the last few months, teaming up to answer uh, probably the most challenging question around business, right? Uh, the idea of uh, trying to understand what does it mean to create uh, uh, good organizations, right? What does it mean to uh, do good in business? And what are the questions that we should really address if you, if we are uh, aiming to reinvent, let's say, uh, business for the 21st century, right? And to make it a force for good, let's say. So I will probably start, if you don't mind, really from here, right? Uh, probably many of the videos that you have been releasing, and by the way, I really encourage our listeners to check those videos because you have been doing lots of uh, very great great videos with great leaders uh, recently as well. You have been discussing about this, but it's a good idea to maybe start to just give a little bit of a framing of this question, which on its own is a very complex question. So what does it mean, good or bad in business or more in general? Uh, where do we start if we want to address the question, are we doing good? I would say the first thing, so, so whoever has been there getting ready with their coffees or glasses of wine for this conversation for the final answers of how to uh, solve all these big questions, I will have to disappoint you because I think, as hopefully some of you, we are still searching. I also, and here I think Simone and myself and many others are on, on similar wavelength, we also don't believe they're necessarily single answers. The, the, the question is holding these big questions is as important as trying to frame some answers. But what I think for Antoinette and myself was very important on this journey that we started about a year ago, I think, was to first learn how to even 
frame those questions properly. Because the moment that we ask what is good or bad, we are basically confronted with two and a half thousand years of philosophical, moral philosophical in particular, conversation. And in order to disentangle that for a question of what is a good business business in the 21st century, there's a need to acquire some of the toolkit that philosophy has prepared for us. And especially here, I think the idea that there are different theories of what makes an action good. And in particular, there are three general theories of ethics. One is called deontology, which is about following certain rational imperatives and rights. Kant is one of the most famous proponents. Then we have utilitarian thinking, which is basically thinking in terms of business cases, what gives maximum utility. And this is, of course, the theory most endorsed by business today. And finally, virtue ethics, which is based on Aristotle and the notion of character and virtue. So what matters is that we cultivate our characters to lead a good life, what he calls eftemonia. So starting from very basic building blocks in terms of how to understand goodness from different perspectives, philosophical, religious, intellectual, I think that was that was the very first step. And maybe the second one, and then I'll hand over to Antoinette, the second one was that we realized through our inquiry that economics, especially in terms of neoliberal capitalism, so the type of prevalent thought system that we all live with today, has endorsed a very peculiar and also strikingly new way of interpreting some of these questions. Frank Martela, one of the persons we interviewed recently, said, if you would run around today and ask people whether they believe in electricity, everybody would look at you and say, well, well of course, electricity, there, look at the plug. And what we have forgotten is that until 200 years ago, people would have the same reaction to the question as, do you believe in God? And the, the, the same notion of what is the good life 200 years ago would never have been interpreted based on what is good for the individual, but always what is good from an ideological or religious perspective. So we have come to this world of capitalism with a very specific notion that over time has given answers about what it means to be good, especially in terms of what is providing utility and in terms of what is the meaning of life. And that is very much the notion of individual freedom based on rational choice. But these answers are, historically speaking, strikingly dissimilar from what was there before. And therefore, that I think is for us very much the starting point to say, okay, we need to look at this again, because some of the results of this capitalistic neoliberal thinking, we don't like. And if we want to define good organizations, we need to start with the what is good question, then see what it means in terms of how we organize. And finally, what it means for leaders or employees in organizations in regards to their ability to take us towards a better model. So that's how, with long words, but maybe a little bit of framing and grounding over to you, Antoinette. Yeah, I would just maybe try to um, explain it in my own words, because I think one thing you said very clearly, and, and, and I think that's also the bedrock, is that you cannot be not normative. That's just not possible. The moment you say we want to maximize profits, that's what I learned in business schools. That's how I do my research, by the way, because I always have to show it's good for performance. Every single study has good to show in, has in the end to show it's good for performance you already have a normative stance. And that's, I think, is important to understand. So whatever we decide, morals are attached to it. And it makes a lot of sense to think about 
how could it be different? And why would I say, how could it be different? I mean, this is why we, in the end, came together, because I started to look, or rather, I probably have been looking at suffering machines for the last 15 years, because by putting the premise on performance, by putting the premise on productivity, uh, on measurables and all other things I'm, sh I'm sure we're going to discuss later, you often also have negative consequences, externalities. Uh, and some of the externalities is, for instance, you destroy intrinsic motivation or you create a culture of distrust. And hence, I think it's very important to go a step back, to look at the normative assumptions and ask yourself, what is what you really, taking all kinds of things into account, what you really want to aim for. Uh, and I think this is maybe just another way of explaining what Otti already explained. And maybe just uh, to bring it back to Simone, where Simone, where, you, where we started was about organizational evolution. And I think what Antoinette is describing is just like almost our assumption that you need to make a step before you go into organizational evolution. You need to examine your own thinking and understand what your own premises are kind of what type of worldview are you trying to bring to life through organizing? And that's almost like a step that most people just, they either jump over it, or like the discussions we have about Teal or, or sociocracy, they take very specific worldviews and seek to operationalize them, but the worldviews are not always evident. And it's not always clear why the worldviews that they're endorsing are kind of better, so to speak, than others. And I think that requires some active reflection and critical thinking that we together, all of us, need to engage with. Otherwise, we could end up making organizations become better at doing doing worse. Right. And uh, I mean, when I was listening to you, I, I was thinking, you know, basically, how do, how do you integrate in this conversation the different cultural specificities, right? Because a lot of what we discuss about uh, being good or bad, right? And you will be, of course, familiar with all this discussion around wokeness, right? And uh, globalism and in general, rationalism. We can call it in many ways, right? But the idea of this leading consensus around uh, what the culture should be, what, what, what good should be, how you are supposed to behave. And uh, uh, these very days, for example, we are seeing... Uh, the war in Ukraine, to some extent, is an expression of this cultural clash between uh, the Russian identity and, you know, the Western identity. And, uh, you know, uh, in general, we are seeing clashes between, for example, Chinese identity. And, you know, in general, we are moving into a world where many regional uh, identities are becoming more important, right? We are moving into a world that is much more multipolar, where I'm afraid it's going to be more complicated to say, this is good or this is bad, because there is a lot of cultural context that needs to be factored in. How do, how do we factor in plur, uh, plur, the plurality of cultures that the world is living in and this resurgence, let's say, of plurality and multipolar uh, perspectives in understanding what, what is good and what is bad? Yes, we have a multicultural world. Um, but we shouldn't take that as an excuse, in my opinion, for relativism. I think even in a multicultural world, you have to think about how can we lead a good life. Uh, I think that remains the same. Now, the easy answer, that's what I was kind of pitching. There's one thing which I think we can already say. I think there are some um, aspects which we would call moral facts. 
I can't imagine that in any culture suffering is better than flourishing. I cannot imagine that in any culture we find it okay that a foreign state attacks another state. I mean, uh, I think there are many questions in Ukraine which are not easy to answer. But on the other hand, it's hard to find somebody who say, well, it's okay to go into a foreign country and invade that country for whatever reasons. So, I mean, I know that's the, that's the easier bit. Now, of course, the more complicated bit is if we go beyond these moral facts. But I think there are also probably answers to that. And here I give it to Otti. <laughs> See, I give the difficult questions to Otti to kind of ponder further. But I agree. So... <laughs> I think we are making a mistake when we say cultural contingency, so to speak, which is a descriptive fact, is necessarily negating normative positions. Because I think many people make the mistake to say science, so to speak. So what I can say about reality, what is real, can tell me what should be real. And we need to understand these are fundamentally different questions. Science can never answer a normative question. It can never tell us what we should do. Science tells us what is until it's proven otherwise. That's the, that's the scientific mechanism, right? It's a hypothesis proven by experiment until the next experiment proves that my deductive conclusions are, are incomplete or wrong. Right? So science cannot answer these questions. It is a normative question as to who do we want to be? What vision of the future do we endorse? As human beings, who do we want to become? And, and what does it mean to be truly human? And as Antoinette says, I think in that context, there are some moral facts that probably would, we would all agree on. Going now into your living room and kill your mother is under probably almost no circumstances a good idea. But I think there's, there's more to that because... Again, going back to the death of God, right? And as Sartre suggested famously, with once God is dead, everything is allowed. So we, the, this, this worldview where God was like electricity, the ideology was so clear, the reason of, for my life was completely clear. That was, a, to a degree, a much simpler world. Today, we have a world where we have to ask that question, I think, even more intensively. Again, to my point... I'm not so sure there are some simple answers, but I, would, I want to suggest that the answer that neoclassical or traditional management and economics have found is not the best one. Why? Because they started out by saying utility is pleasure. Right? So it was all about maximizing pleasure, pleasure minimizing pain, which is a, a, a philosophy that goes back to of Epicurean stance. Right? It's just about my hedonic well-being. From there, we, move, we moved into rational choice. So we suddenly said, well, kind of maybe it's not just pleasure, maybe it's just a rational evaluation of different preferences. Right? That's what kind of neoclassical uh, economics is about. And somehow in the last 30, 40 years, from there, we went to it's all about profit. And I think this notion of profit, many people have forgotten what it is. It's, it's revenues minus costs. Every single employee, every customer, every life that is contained in the notion of organizing is reduced to what is the repayment of capital. And frankly, even by a rational argument, if you look at knowledge businesses, the fruits of the organizations are not only 
due to the financial capital that was, that was brought into the organization. That assumption that the, everything the organization needs to work for and the, what the to whom the organization belongs is just a capitalist. I mean, it just makes no sense. But as Antoinette says, is also the reductivist version of the firm is creating a lot of undue suffering. And here we go back and say, we need to answer these questions in a fashion that we are creating flourishing. And then we go into a conversation, okay, what does flourishing mean? And interestingly, whilst there are cultural contextualities, as Antoinette is saying, actually, there's a, it's more striking that there's a lot of synergy between what different philosophies and cultures think about flourishing. Right? What does it mean to be truly human? I actually think the consensus is, is um, far greater than people make it. Not trying to reduce it to a rule set of Ten Commandments or something, but saying, can we start from the idea that we need to all agree to live a good life together because life is short and we need to make something out of it. I think that is a, we should make it also for our children and for nature. So I think there are lots of, in the modern, more postmodern times, there is, I think, some agreement that we can broker and then juxtapose that to the way that we're organizing our organizations by today and seek to be better. Yeah, I, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting to hear, uh, you know, this analysis of the neoliberal, let's say, framework that we have, financialization of our organizations and so on. And so I'm, this brings me back to the question and that I've seen in your work about the separation is a fallacy, like you cannot look at things in separation. So if we can go into that direction based on what you, you just said, is that the problem that we see ourselves as too much as individual agents in a system and, and how would the, the alternative sort of be to that and, and how do you look at those relationship, qualitative relationship and how is that conducive to finding a closer answer to your question, if you see what I mean? Well, I think basically, yes, neoliberalism has one idea um, very much in the forefront and this is, among other things, homo economicus. So this is a, a single individual rationalizing his or her self-interest, uh, optimizing in a rational fashion his or her self-interest. And then everything is built on that idea that we are homo economicus, which then leads us to think about how can we make sure that this rather self-interested individual will, for instance, cooperate, we come up with contracts, what you're doing as well. Um, we're thinking about institutional ethics on the side of the government saying we need some punishment if people do not cooperate. So we build everything on this idea of this single individual who is also very self-interested. Now, I believe that's not true to our nature. So I'm not giving you the ontological answer. I think this is what might be Otti later doing, but I'm just giving you the answer that I believe we are really social animals. We are very much able um, to show sociality, to cooperate. In fact, we, we often do cooperate even in games. Economists have come up where people usually would act in self-interest, but we act with fairness, with reciprocity. And the fact that we often don't see that and that don't use that for our series is having um, the effect that we start to be more individualistic than we necessarily are. 
So what we try to do when we look at that topic is to bring this other aspect back. I mean, we're not saying uh, that we can't be egoistic. Sometimes we are. We're not saying that we also see ourselves as individuals. But we're saying at the same time, relationships are also highly important and we cherish relationships and we can even be vulnerable in relationships if there is friendship or more. So um, what we're saying is kind of what if and let's strengthen this other aspect. And one way to strengthen this other aspect is, for instance, by thinking about how can we bring more about these moments of high quality relationships High-quality relationships, again, something very natural. All of us have already had that. When you are in sync with another person, when you feel that everything between you is flowing well, when you feel you can open up. So I guess from a very practical side, we're saying, do not underestimate the power of our sociality. Let's design also later organizations which enable this part of sociality so that in the end, we are getting towards more human organizations. But now I probably was carried away a little little bit. I hope it wasn't too complicated. That's exactly right. Um, And let me try to build on it and connect it to Simone's point from big bidding. So so your, your, your point was one of ontology almost, right? So the systems perspective, I would say it's not only ontological as in how do we comprehend reality, it's one of identity. And that's what I, again, pointed to earlier in the Middle Ages, there was no such thing as an individual, as a starting point of identity. It was always the community. It was always the, the kind of role that you inhabited. But here, I think this is where today we have the beauty of being able to make choices. And the first choice was profit, right? So the idea was income or, or wealth determines happiness. And I think we have got so much research that shows us that is only true within certain boundaries. One boundary is you need a minimum, right? And the the numbers vary based on cultural context. The second boundary is, yes, the people who are wealthier are normally happier, so to speak, than others who are not. But it also shows that there's a lot of limitation to take income as the central pillar of well-being. There's more to well-being than income. And then I think we go immediately to a question of, okay, what is this? What is the rest about? And one aspect is to look at hedonic versus eudaimonic, so the, the ethical aspects of well-being. How can we all contribute to a good society? And here, again, I want to point to the fact that people misunderstand what morality or ethics is. Right? Morality in its essence is about where are the boundaries of my freedom vis-a-vis your freedom? Right? How can we all work together for something that is greater than ourselves. Right? That is what ethics at its very heart is about, because you have to decline the goodness of the action somewhere. To the question of, is it about me versus others? The first answer is probably, yes, it has to be. And Aristotle was very simple in his answer. He said, you cannot be happy without having a friend. Right? So there's this notion of friendship and being social, as Antoinette says, which is fundamental to our well-being. There's a second, and this is where ethics come in, which is actually we cannot construct a good society that is good for all citizens if we don't find certain ways of behaving with each other that make it good for everybody. There's some thought required, and that might be contingent to Simone's point. So it might be we need to agree that based on a specific situation or, or country or company or whatever, but we need to have that conversation. We cannot just say everybody making instrumental gains, that's a good enough answer. And then in terms of systems, 
I think we need to be careful what we mean by systems. I'm almost thinking, Ken Wilber, there are different ways to decline a system. A human being is a system, so you can take an internal individual perspective. You can say a team or an organization is a human system, and you can take, again, an internal psychological perspective on that. Or you can go into the external realm and say, I define a system as different technical components or real visible components of a system. Right, so you have when you say the word system, I think we need to be very careful what we mean. And I think in that regard, the epistemological question of our organizations are systemic, i.e., they are limited in what they can know about the world and therefore need to constantly adapt, is a completely different question to kind of an ontological question of how do I define myself as part of others or as part of the world? Those are both systemic questions, but very different slants. And I'm with Antoinette. I think at some stage we need to find a way of intersubjectivity, of feeling others as much as we feel ourselves, feeling the relationships, because it's, a, in an, it's an important ingredient to not only happiness, but also finding wisdom, finding the right answers in the way that we behave. Right? And, and in that context, I find this notion of vulnerability that comes out of trust research very interesting, where... If we want to rely on each other, if we want to get to that position of interbeing or relationships being so important, we need to accept that there's risk. We need to be vulnerable to be exposed to that risk of relationship. And uh, Luigino Bruno, with whom we're going to speak this week, is suggesting that capitalism, a patriarchal kind of capitalism, has done everything it could to avoid vulnerability. We want to be in control. But this is deeper than just the being in control of the environment. There's actually a, a psychodynamic controlling that fear, the anxiety of being exposed to each other. Therefore, we are creating roles. Therefore, we're creating taxonomies. Therefore, we're creating language. It's all very masculine, which is also very, very funny because traditionally oikos, oikonomia, was the realm of the woman. It was the realm of the household, whilst politics was the realm of the man and the peers. Right, but when the moment we, we industrialized economics, um, it became the realm of men. There are only about 20% of professors in economics that are women. Right? No surprise, maybe, that we are all so much in favor of this male interpretation of controlling features in organizations. Well, it makes sense because, you know, for what I've learned about feminism uh, lately, I've, I've learned that there's a lot of overlap between feminism and complexity, right? The, the capacity to perceive complexity, and uh, that's definitely not part of the uh, leading thinking in economics and organizing uh, today, right? You know, we, we tend to think ourselves as separated. And uh, uh, I mean, there's a lot that you spoke about that makes me think about many of the questions that we have been uh, approaching lately in this podcast. So one important thing that I think I wanted to bounce back to see what you think about this. So if we agree that we have uh, not very much transition into, but I would say a knowledge that we are living in a complex world where there is no positive sum game, really. No, the world is really a zero-sum game, right, in terms of ecology, for example. If we think about, you know, there is no way to create this abundance that everybody is talking about, really. You know, we are using resources. There are increasingly going to be conflicts over resources. You know, we are seeing this happening, unfolding in real time in the world, you know, because we are living through this peak age, right? Peak oil, peak uh, resources, peak uh, materials, whatever. And we are seeing 
uh, impacts on supply chains, for example, at this moment, right? We are seeing how these supply chains that we constructed, these industrial supply chains that have created this technosphere that you also referred to Otti, when you sp- spoke about seeing organizing as a way to detach from reality, right? To create this technological capability to separate from, from danger, let's say. So, if we agree that that epistemology, right, the industrial epistemology, the epistemology of rationalism, of progress and technology, and and, and I would say also uh, Prometheanism is a failed epistemology, right? Because we recognize, we're reckoning now that the world is complex, that we have to find the different ways to perceive and, and act in the world that, for example, go through beauty, you know, for example, no, and, uh, and different ways to perceive what is good for the world, I think we found some answers to these questions in some pieces of work. And more specifically, I must say, in the ideas that are related to Ivan Illich's conviviality, right? This idea that uh, there is uh, something that has to give when we uh, looking for different ways to relate with the world. And uh, Illich makes often these references to the idea of austerity, right? So this idea that you have to renounce a little bit to, to technology, right? You have to be critical versus, you know, towards technology. You have to look at the, and technology and organizations are pretty much the same thing, right? It's the expression of techniques, let's say. And we have found some interesting points in, in the conviviality hypothesis. In, for example, how do you develop a convivial organization? We spoke about this with uh, Michael Sakasas recently. And uh, we spoke about things such as uh, human scale. And we spoke about things like being productive instead of being a consumer, you know, instead of uh, essentially uh, pushing consumer perspective, consumer approaches in, in, in the users, uh, you know, kind of uh, enabling a more, much more producer uh, attitude in the people. So essentially the point that I want to make here is also a good way to connect uh, to the topic of how do we organize, right? And in this transition, uh, we have we feel that uh, we don't just have to develop different ways to organize, but we have to actually take care of different things. We have to, for example, take care of economies of essentials, such as food, energy, welfare, education, these things that we have pretty much delegated to the industrial complex for at least one century, right? So this idea to change our posture as organizers, as participants, and to take care of our staff, being much more aware of the, you know, the problematic nature of the world, the conflicting nature somehow of the world we live in. So the possibility that at some point we will have to take care of our own staff because simply, you know, resources are not there uh, if we don't take care of them. You know, make, let's make an example. Uh, if I don't take care of my energy production, I may not be able to have energy because the industrial complex is not is not that solid as I was thinking about. You know, that's the, the, the idea. So the idea that we have to take care of organizing much more in first, first hand, much more, uh, you know, as protagonists of organizing instead of consuming organizing. Uh, does this spark some reflection of, or some ideas on your side. Yes, but I think it goes even deeper because, again, I think the fundamental starting point is why are we here? What does good imply? So, the, the, so why are we here is kind of who are we and what's our identity? And then the second question is how do we act? And that's, again, ethics, right? So, And if we say we're here to flourish and organizations are organisms within society and we as society allow them to be created and therefore they inherit a necessity to become 
good actors in the sense of enabling our society to achieve its goals, i.e. flourishing, we have a normative perspective on what organizing is all about. It's about bringing out the best, the most human in us. And by the way, that's not the cult of perfectionism, me becoming the best. No, it's about me contributing whilst I'm flourishing to the flourishing of all, because as Antoinette pointed out in this notion of relationships, my happiness, my flourishing is intrinsically intertwined with your flourishing and happiness. If we are not all creating an environment within which we have justice, we have peace, we have the freedom to do certain things, if we don't do that together, we cannot flourish as a society. So if that is the starting point from organizing as a normative position, of course, I still need to be viable. So viability or profitability condition is a secondary um, request, so to speak. But the primary necessity is to contribute to the good of all. Then I think you immediately go into uh, a question of, okay, how do we how do we do that? And our idea was to say, well, there are three levels. As, as, as actors within society, organizations need to contribute to the environment, to the ecosystem they're in. So they have to behave responsibly. Within the organization and the community that it creates across suppliers, across customers, and so on, it again needs to enable that connected flourishing. And finally, we can never ignore the individual because the cherishing of the individual is ultimately what the society and the community together need to do. It's not a collectivist, we tell you what to do. No, it's we are all here to co-elevate and bring you out in the beauty and the uniqueness of the individual. So being the breeding ground for an individual is, is an intrinsic part of this way of organizing. And then you start to see the market differently. So the market is not there as a cold-hearted, kind of uh, immune, not knowing the, the, the participants' way of optimizing allocation of resources. No, it's an intrinsic mechanism that allows me to make my unique contribution to the good of all, because I'm good at something, but not good at another thing. So the market allows me to bring in my bit, someone else does their bit, and altogether we do something collectively that is great, right? And that vision of the market, which was prevalent in the thinking of someone like Antonio Genovese, the famous uh, Italian economist, 1769, in uh, the University of Naples, who, by the way, was the first ever chair, kind of uh, inhabitant of a chair for economics, right? That kind of thinking we've lost. We have instrumentalized ourselves. We've enslaved ourselves in this purely instrumental paradigm where it's all about optimizing consumption. Right? So I think what we're opting for is let's go back to the roots and let's re-envisage, re reimagine, recreate a new language for this different way of acting. And again, the second point, and then over to Antoinette, is in the Aristotelian logic, which is very much what we have embraced. So virtue ethics in Aristotelian sense combined with stakeholder theory, which comes from pragmatism, and a few other bits and pieces. In that logic, it's not so much about the question who is right or who is wrong. It's a question of who are we and who can we become? It's a question of character. So again, the logic would not so be let's limit this and limit that, net zero, net something else, which is all the language of utilitarianism. It's through our organizing, who can we individually and collectively become? What is that beautiful vision of who we could be? And how do we enact that? And then rather than kind of technical systems thinking and so on, it goes back to compassion. Right? It goes back to love. It goes back to how, what are these attitudes and virtues that we bring into every single conversation, into every single role that we have? It's re-enchanting, so to speak, the way that we interact and not re-enchanting with ideological or religious thinking, but with the 
as you said earlier, beauty, the aesthetics of bringing out the human good in everything that we do. And that requires a degree of temperance. And if you look at any religion or philosophical tradition, this, I have to limit myself a little bit so that we can all flourish. And I will ultimately do that, not because I have to, but because I know that I will flourish through not giving into my excesses, so to speak. That, I think, is a little bit this character education that we need to regain. So we cannot just look at organizations. We need to look at educating citizenship inside organizations and as organizations to contribute to society. So that's, uh, I think, Antoinette Howard would long and <laughs> wide kind of frame it. What's your view? I have to smile a little bit because I was just waiting for the wises almost. No, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, if I just, again, take up what Otti was saying, and again, maybe not from a systems perspective, or, or, although I can see you, that you probably can frame it also in that perspective as you started. Then I would say what we are saying, if it's about who can we become, it's about our everyday actions whilst we're working. And there are at least three things which I believe are very important. And if I say them, they, in my opinion, don't sound so complicated. So it's about being better citizens. You just called it producers and in taking more care of the industrial complex. That's another way to put it. I'm just saying becoming better citizens. So ask the question, whom am I in service for? And it could be an internal customer, it could be an external customer, that could be stakeholders, but kind of make that very, very clear. Bring in back, again, more reflection. Yes, we have to react more quickly. Yes, we are often just kind of adapting, but we are still humans. We have this um, capacity to reflect, to be reasonable. So bring that into the work more clearly. And that could be then done together. So we learn about deliberation. That can be done for yourself. So you learn about yourself. You learn moral reflection. You learn how to do things better, also on a very practical plane. And then the last thing is work on the relationships. Because in the relationships, you are going to have the best chances to get better. So this is then just a practical kind of translation, I think, what Otti was saying. And how we believe you can bring that into organizations almost a little bit like a Trojan horse. It doesn't sound so complicated to me. Otti, now you want to say something. If I make the loop, what Antoinette is saying, and again, I want to make the point, what we are describing here is almost like another extreme position. Not to say that is the only position, but to put the dot on the horizon to say, let's reflect from where we are, what the right on that range, where is our right position? As Antoinette says, this reflection of who should we become is important because otherwise we might be losing our lives in just running faster and faster after the wrong idol, so to speak, right? And I, and therefore, one judgment that we make in terms of the goodness of organizations is simply what type of people do they produce? Loving, social, flourishing beings or angry, violent, disconnected, unhappy, depressed, burned out people? Right, what kind of our choice because it's our world and our organizations. And this is, I think, so we can talk about the technicalities of how we organize inside organizations. We can talk about autonomy and we talk about freedom, micro enterprises, whatever you want. But we shouldn't forget about A, why are we here? And B, what are the basic mechanisms 
of making people flourish and then free how do we translate that into an organizational context and what are the circumstantial conditions in the wider economy in the wider society that are interactive with that so there is system logic at all three levels but we need to bring it together because otherwise again i fear it's so it's so easy to just do what we're doing but better which is not the right thing yeah i think you quite clearly described that actually for ethics reside in the relationship like between people you cannot really do that in isolation let's say it's 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 about your relationship with the other and the boundaries of your own uh, freedom like you mentioned and so it's quite interesting also to think about because we are very bad at this right uh, i think most people are very bad at negotiating agreeing trying to be together we have sort of we haven't really learned that and you mentioned education uh, which is an interesting space too to where we definitely don't really learn uh, those kind of skills but we are we still go into compartmentalized things students get sorted uh, out of uh, sort of abilities and uh, very early in life get trained into being productive being uh, let's say tackling one subject at a time and so on this is helpful because i know that uh, simone also wanted to go into more on the contracts and and so on so maybe one question is also like how technology can help us in this you know as a complement to these human to human relationships because otherwise well i mean we do live in in a very technological world as well with and that's how a lot of things are organized like like we mentioned previously so do you see that as a caution point or as an enabler essentially to this maybe i go first at that because that's probably a slightly different answer than you will get from otti because i was just at the trust conference where we were also looking at the interplay of artificial intelligence and relationships and trust technology is as everything is first an instrument and it always depends how we deploy that instrument and what we have found out is first of all it changes a little bit the situation of the employees because often the way we use technology raises their vulnerability, rather reduces it. And one answer we find then very important is that we do not react towards this in a way like um, making sure that there is no vulnerability because it invariably will um, bring up more vulnerability, but that on the other side, there's also hate and vulnerability. That's a little bit counterintuitive and I think opposite to some of the suggestions. But I do believe you shouldn't lose or you should even be more active the vulnerability on the side of the organization, for instance, or on the side of the of the leader, because thereby you then create the possibilities for bigger trust, for better relationships, rather than to shoot it down completely by doing everything only by the design of technology. I mean, this is what is often done. I think rather you have to have more options open and make yourself more vulnerable on the more powerful side, because there is still a more powerful side too. That is hopefully not too complicated answer. I could give you more precise answers. We have looked at various ways how to do that, but maybe that's also not the point to do that here. And I think also Otti has probably a slightly different answer. This is now just coming straight of our research when we looked at that. Well, I think it's all, and again, to Simone's point, right? It's kind of this, this world is so complex and it's so hard to find a way to take a stance in life that feels good for us and for the people we're with, right? And in that context, technology impacts us every day. And the question of kind of is it good, is it bad, is a question I think 
as Stina was just saying, we have to continue asking. And there's some fundamental things which I think are so important. Um, so this notion, we, we landed kind of, why are we here? There is no meaning in life, but we have an opportunity to create meaning within that through the relationships that we have, through what we create together. And that to a degree is what Camus called the absurdity of life. There is no life, there is no, there is no sense in our existence as such, but we actually have a means to create meaning by ourselves. And I think that is something we will all, we always need to keep very, very prevalent. And that requires our vulnerability to each other and to these questions, right? There's, we can be wounded. We can be hurt by being open to these questions, but that is our only hope. We will fail, so to speak, if we close these questions, if we close ourselves to others and these questions, we can only lose. And technology sometimes becomes a, a closes these questions. Either it's instrumentalized to control people and take them, take away the freedom that is the very prerequisite for responsibility. We can only become responsible if we are free to do so. We can only become friends if we are free to become friends. So freedom is always a basis, but it's not in itself for me. And this is where I don't agree with Amartya Sen. I don't think it's the end. The end is flourishing, is the good life. Freedom is a, is, is a necessary prerequisite. So if technology is either closing freedom of people or it's closing some of these answers and just continuing on the path we're on, I think it, it can become an obsession. It can become an addiction. It can become something that closes us and makes us smaller as humans than what we can be. And, and I think at the end of the day, this is about an anthropological question almost, like, what is it? What does it mean to be truly human? And I think there's beauty, as you said, uh, Simone. There's some beauty we can bring out. And maybe sometimes we don't even need to ask the question, what is right or wrong or good or bad? Let's ask the question, what is beautiful? Mm. Is our technology, is our acting, is our behaving, is our, is our speaking, is that beautiful? Is our organization beautiful? And uh, I guess if we go beyond the the vanity of the superficiality and ask that question with an open mind, so to speak, and an open heart, then, yeah, we probably will know the answer. Right? But as Antoinette pointed out earlier, and Stina said, we need to continue to ask that question, and not only by ourselves, but together. And here technology can certainly help. It can make organizations more participative. It can offer people to engage, opportunities to engage, create communities and, 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 and endorse critical thinking and all those good things. Right? So I think technology can be immensely powerful if it's used in the right way. But let's make sure it's not closing out things that haven't been investigated and examined sufficiently. Right? Otherwise, we fall into traps. You can only learn trusting by trusting. So, I mean, this is, for me, one example. Um, we shouldn't use um, technology in a sense that it kind of deprives us what we need to learn as human beings in order to be um, really flourishing individuals. It should enable us, it should support us, and it can do this very, uh, this very often, but it should um, also let us having our failures, for instance, that's very important because you cannot have vulnerability without sometimes also falling down. This is just very normal. And that I think is very important. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, I, I feel we are having very, very hard times during these conversations in general in the practice to focus on this kind of via negativa, this question of accepting that 
the evolution of organizing, it may also be about sub subtracting something, right? It may be about uh, letting go of something. It may be about uh, something that has to give, right? In terms of uh, our expectations, for example, uh, even towards modernity, right? Because at the end of the day, this discussion around wokeism versus basedness and uh, these kind of culture wars that we are living to some extent, I feel we have signals on both sides, right? We have signal both on the globalist, technological powered, Prometheanism agenda. You know, technology is important. And for example, when we speak about contract-based organizing, if you don't have a blockchain or a contract platform, whatever, you cannot really do much. Uh, but on the other side, uh, in our thinking, these platforms, these technological platforms are needed for people to take responsibility to organize in a much more embedded context. So in producing their own energy, their own food, their own water security, their own bioregional economics, and so on. Uh, so in a much more based, if you want, more traditional way of thinking that, for example, reconnects with this idea of beauty. You know, lots of the discussion around uh, traditionalism, for example, at the moment, and taking care of production, taking care of agriculture, and, uh, you know, all this homesteading movement, for example, that is emerging online, it's all, all also about reconnecting with beauty, reconnecting with traditions, and so on. So I think uh, we are having our times reconciling these two things. It seems that we have two churches but we cannot really make it work as a, make a synthesis of it. That may be the only way forward for organizing. You know, this embracing this kind of uh, need to re-embed organizing in, in our real context, in our communities, in our landscapes, and at the same time uh, bringing technology with us as we do so. Uh, I think uh, this is probably the space where, where I'm interested in exploring. And that's why when I wrote uh, recently this post about the contracts and the nature of the firm, my hypothesis is Corporates are there, for example, right? As they evolve into contracting platforms, they will enable their teams to re-embed into their, their own priorities, their own context, both locally and community-wise. So I'm wondering if you have maybe a, a few closing words on, on this kind of yin-yang dynamic, right? You know, the, the, the globalist progress, technology part, and the tradition, embeddedness, community landscape, part, how do we find a synthesis around this? And maybe starting from the context of organizing that we have now, which is full of incumbents and large corporations that need to be embedded with society, basically. It's not easy because I think what, again, in this notional system, right? So if we acknowledge the fact that different ways to interpret what system thinking means, I think this psychodynamic interpretation of systems is extremely relevant. It's not so much looking at the system as to what is visible, what, what it means. What is the relevance of power? What's the relevance of authority? What are the taboos and so on? How does the organization speak to us? As Antoinette says, does, does the organization tell us, I trust you, I cherish you as a unique human being, and I want to make you flourish, and that is the only justification for asking you to be responsible and contribute to our all flourishing? Is that the language that is going on unconsciously in the dialogue between me and, and the organization I'm in? So I think, and to your point about this, this I interpret this uh, search for nature and harmony and people going also in some of the Eastern religions, very similar to what happened in Romanticism. 
People forget that romanticism is only on the superficially connected to this notion of romantic. It was actually a, a, a very, very strong counter movement to enlightenment because enlightenment was all about rationality. It was all about science and romanticism was about a return to nature, return to, return to the classics and also a heroic um, view of the raw individual. Like you say, so we got this enlightenment ideal, which also to a degree is expressed in the technological progress. It is a, there's a degree of um, search for endless living in there, right? There's a hubris contained in that. And you, you have this counter movement of people who are going back into nature, but also into themselves. And I think both are not the right way to, we, we need to find a third way, which is about coming together as people, as Antoinette said, find the deliberative mechanisms to talk vulnerably, embrace each other and say, kind of, the, the, the world is, is, is not easy. How can we together kind of look each other in the eye and become, as Henry Minspec says, interdependent for the good of all? Because we have been born dependent on each other. The, uh, the illusion of separation, the illusion of independence is, is flawed. And cherishing that, the moment that God was out of the picture, has to a degree brought us to extract value from each other and from the world. And that is something that most deeply inside ourselves will require that maturity and wisdom to say, no, then there must be a different way and we cannot find it by ourselves. It can only be in the relationship. So I think it, it transcends technology and science. It transcends romanticism and escapism to a degree back to the beauty of nature. No, we have to finally grow up and get out of this midlife complex and by the way above all all the male kind of type leaders like myself they need to start to re-embrace re some of that interdependence Antoinette what do you think? <laughs> I was thinking that again the core should always be this question how can we enable flourishing that should be the core uh, of course, with this condition that the system or the organization needs to be viable. And then everything just needs to go from there, because for me, everything then is just a means to this end. Um, I mean, I also read your article and I found it interesting, but for me, contracts are just one means to accomplish that, even in a complex world, even in an HR world. It might even be bureaucracy. It might. It, it surely should be also trust. But of course, the question is always, how we enact it, how we implement it, what is the intention behind, how are we driving together the system towards that flourishing. That is, for me, the main point. I don't think there is a panakia which will solve everything. And I would just say heterogeneity, in my opinion, is probably the answer to complexity. I mean, at least this is the reading I always had. Lawrence Lorsch was, called, uh, was saying very clearly, you need to be internally complex as well if you have in external complexity. And that to me means more have many flowers, but make sure in the end that we're really flourishing. That's what I would say. Uh, and it sounds a little bit lofty here because we, of course, cannot go to the details of your article, but maybe we do that at another time. No, but I mean, I don't think it's that, that's the point. I mean, it's. Um, I think my, my feeling uh, it's that when 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 Otti, for example, when you refer to this third way, right, this uh, synthesis, right, I feel that we are not really open to the idea that this third way, this synthesis, is something that we cannot reach. You know, because it's inherent in the nature of humans, right? For example, when we speak about flourishing. Are we speaking about human flourishing or are we speaking about health, system health? So, for example, 
the others, you know, not not just humans, but the uh, trees and the water and uh, and you know the regions, right? The landscapes. I think it's very hard to get to this synthesis, and uh, uh, don't, I don't think we have cracked uh, yet this kind of challenge that uh, recognizing complexity is pushing us uh, into, right? So as we uh, go outside of this industrial age, we recognize that the world is complex, we don't have answers, and I don't think we are so comfortable in not having those answers yet, right? But for sure, your work on, on these topics and our work on the you know enabling organizing models, I think it's uh, represent ingredients that we can use in, in, in at least having the chance to measure ourselves with these problems, with these challenges, with this thinking, these questions, instead of just retreating and say, you know, let's go back to the categories we are familiar with. Let's instead embrace this uh, complexity, this, these problems that we have on the table. Even if we don't have the answer, I think uh, we should really push ourselves into, into this, uh, uh, you know, to quote um, Don Haraway, this trouble, right? You have, you have to stay in this trouble a little bit. So thank, thank you so much. I mean, I, I mean, the conversation was very enriching. I mean, it opened up so many points that we have to come back to, I think, uh, and our listeners will have uh, tons of suggestions to, uh, to start, you know, explore the work of uh, others as well. Uh, so maybe it's good to, since the questions are also very meaty, let's say, uh, and I'm sure that we are just at the start, it's good to, to give pointers to where they can find your work and follow your steps in this research through your videos, your blogs. So maybe you can just give us a couple of pointers for the listeners to, uh, to reconnect with your work in the coming weeks and months. Goodorganizations.com, LinkedIn, Antoinette also on Twitter, me on all the social platforms, but not very active. But I think, again, most importantly, as, as you said, Simone, engage. Right, so look at the stuff, but most importantly, find the fora with us or with others to, to enter into this dialogue. These questions are all very hard but they're necessary, like you said. Yeah, I feel that people sometimes uh, have this, they hesitate uh, in engaging publicly with these challenges, right? Because they're, business persona may be uh, impacted, right? Their their image, you know, uh, may be impacted to, from having too many questions on how do you run a business, how do you run an organization, what motivates you, uh, what we are supposed to do with our organization's teams and so on. So really engage, that's the keyword uh, for today. So th- thank you so much, both of you. Thank you, Otti. Thank you, Antoniette. Uh, so thank you so much, both of you. Uh, and Stina, thank you so much as well. Uh, for, for your contribution. Thank you very much. Thank you. And to our listeners, catch up soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boundless Conversations podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on boundless.io for our latest news and updates. There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, and connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform strategies and organizational transformations for the age of ecosystems. We also want to thank Walter Mobilio at Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.